Hey folks, John Curry here for another episode of the Secure Retirement Podcast. Today I'm sitting here with Lou and Cal Ogburn and April Showen. I'm looking forward to today because there is a wealth of information sitting across the table from me regarding special needs planning. But before we get into that, Lou and Cal, I would like for you to share with our listeners a little bit of your background. And during lunch, I was fascinated by the fact that, Cal, you served in three branches of the military, Army, Air Force, and, and Coast Guard. Will you tell us a little bit about that, Cal? Yes. Uh, back in 19, <coughs> in the 50s, I was drafted into the Army. And I did my two-year required hitch in the Army. Unfortunately, a lot of my Army duty was working at Air Force bases in air traffic control. So when I got out of the Army, I then joined the Air Force Reserve, which I was very happy and thought I was going to make my 20 years doing that. When I began to hear about the Coast Guard, had started an aviation section, and one of those units was in Savannah, very close to my hometown at that time, Waycross. Mm -hmm. So I went down there and talked to the recruiter, and he hired me and about five of my other Coast uh, Reserve people to join the Coast Guard as well. So that's how I ended up in the Coast Guard, and I'm very pleased that I did, did that. I was in the Air Force, so I resent the fact you left the Air Force to go to the Coast Guard. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's called a commission. <laughs> I understand that. That's funny. That's funny. Now, while he was doing all of this uh, military stuff, what were you doing, Lou? Finished college and went to work for what was then Intagon, which is a life insurance company. Worked there for several years, or maybe a year or two. Moved over to Wachovia, which is now Wells Fargo. And then um, we moved to Daytona Beach, Florida. So after that, uh, it was just uh, any job I could find doing anything. Ended up in Waycross, Georgia, and was a social worker. I had a degree in business administration. They didn't ask what the degree was in. They said, do you have a degree? I said, I do, and they hired me. So it was a great job in a little town where you kind of knew everybody and you had to make your own fun and you learned a lot about the people, the culture, and how to help them. But while we were in Waycross, we also adopted two children and it turns out one of those had special needs. So about the time that she was needing to be tested and to go into the school system, we moved to Tallahassee, which offered a lot of opportunities for her, and I'm happy we made that move. So that starts the career with our daughter, Ruth. She started out uh, at Gretchen Everhart School, which is a special needs school here, and finished when she was 22. She's now 53, and she worked in the interim for 24 years at one job, and has now left that job because of a health problem, but is doing volunteer work at one of the nursing homes in Tallahassee. So she's very happy. She likes the gym. She goes to an aerobics pool, and she has a 
trainer who helps her several times a week, and she loves dancing, so she's taking a dance class. Aww. So she seems quite happy. She lives on her own with supports at night. I want to back up for a second. I just learned something new that I did not know, and I've known you for a long time, 25, 30 years. I'm not sure how long it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did not know that you worked at Intagon. I was I worked at Intagon for 17 months. Huh, really? As a an agent, I sure did. And the head office was then in Winston Salem. That's correct. And I worked for the vice president, and I could forge his name, and I wrote all of his correspondence. <laughs> he did not like to do that. I, I, when did you work there? What years? I finished college in. 61, so I went to work within two weeks. So I'll probably work there from 61 to 62, maybe. That's Mom, probably a year. Mine was a little later, 76 to 77. Too bad, because I would have <laughs> used some cars. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. It is. Um, April, if you have questions that pop your mind, jump into. I, I want to ask you a quick question before we move on. Would you take a moment and just share with our listeners how you got so passionate about learning everything you could about special needs. Because over the years, I've learned so much from you, and I'm convinced you know more about this topic than most attorneys who consider themselves special needs attorneys. So would you just address that, and then we'll go back to April for a minute. Sure. When Ruth was about, I guess she was, she didn't walk. That was the first little clue we had. When she was a year old, she didn't walk until she was maybe 18 months, which, and she didn't talk. So we had a doctor who lived next door. He was about our age, and I went over there one day, and I said to him, um, what do you think's wrong with Ruth? And it was sort of a flippant question, and he said, I think she's retarded. Well, when I finished crying, I, well remember that. I, uh, I thought, you know, that ain't going to do you any good. You might as well try to learn everything you can. So at that point, my mission became, how do we help her? And I, Waycross didn't offer too much, but as I said, uh, we had her tested at both the University of Georgia twice. We had access, we were in Georgia, we had access to the medical school there. And the first diagnosis said, she will never develop at all, so put her in an institution. What year, about what year is this? She was about... <clears throat> I guess it was about 18 months when they told us of that. She was born in 65, so this was in 67 yeah. sometime. And so that, I just, I just didn't accept it. That was just not the answer I wanted. And so he took her back, and I can't remember. It was probably about a two- or three-year period in time. And in addition to that point, we had adopted another child who was exactly the opposite of Ruth. He was well on his way to being an adult when he was about two years old. <laughs> he could walk at seven months. Oh, wow. And he could talk, and he could do anything. It's very well coordinated. And here you had two children 18 months apart in age, and one was more advanced than the other, but he was the younger one. So it was sort of a dilemma. We took her back to the University of Georgia and took him with us this time, and they said, oh, no, that first diagnosis was all wrong. She will, uh, she's, there's nothing wrong with her. She's just a little bit slow. Well, I didn't think that diagnosis was right either. You know, you kind of know when something's wrong. So the third, third evaluation was made here in Tallahassee by a neurologist who's no longer a living. 
And his was the most correct. He said, I'm suspecting there was brain damage at birth. He said, probably forcep damage. And when she was delivered, we had no way to know that, of course. And he said, and I think there is some paralysis in her throat that keeps her from speaking clearly. He said, but my best guess at this point, and she was older, is that she will attain the chronological age of about 13. And he said, I think she's still okay. So he gave me hope. Hmm. So I put her in a regular kindergarten, and they took her, but they always knew that one of the teachers had to have her hand when they went on field trips and things like that. And actually, she started in a regular school, but that, um, in the first grade, that didn't last long before they decided to staff her into Gretchen Alberhardt. So we essentially got the best of the special needs school. It was new. It had everything and had the best of the teachers. And they did the best they could with her. She doesn't read. She cannot write. And she cannot tell time. But she can think. And she can accept several commands at one time. And she, she has common sense. So I don't know, no psychologist or no doctor has ever been able to explain why. Hmm. It doesn't follow any pattern. She's not Downs. Um, when the Mayo Clinic several, maybe 10 years ago, did an MRI on her, they said that the brain was normal looking, with the exception that it was a little bit smaller than perhaps yours and mine, and the Two little places at the back were a little bit wider than yours and mine would show up on an MRI. But they said there's just nothing that shows that shows any abnormalities in the brain. So we don't know the answers to what happened. I even got a reading teacher several, maybe 15 years ago, to work with her again just to make sure we hadn't missed anything. And she said no. She cannot do the reading. But if you gave her a pictorial book that had emblems in it that she's used to seeing on television business. She could tell you what all of those are. And she can read trucks going down the highway if it's a Walmart truck or if it's a, a Best Buy truck or if it's a this Walgreens. She knows those, but she can't read the words. So your guess is good. And I've had a psychologist, which she's been to see many psychologists through the years, tell me that if they had to put a label on her, they don't know what they'd put. Hmm that she doesn't fall into any pattern at all. She's, she has tendencies of autism, but she's too friendly. She's very social, and that is the mark of an autistic child is that they have no social skills at all. Right. And she has a lot of social skills. Yes, she does. Every time so, you see her she, in public, she's just people like her, and she likes people. I've been going to the <clears throat> gym here for maybe four years I know maybe four people who work there. I mean, I'll say hello. I don't know their names. Ruth's been going for a year. Everyone knows her name, and she knows their name. (laughs) (laughs) So she just has a different personality. So So does that help answer your question? That's how I got started, and that's why I decided I had no choice. But we had to have the best for her. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, there were a lot of people around me and a lot of good help in Tallahassee. And... We were just here at the right time where the, uh, the services were available and we were able to get in on the ground floor. Do you feel like your experience in social work helped with this some? Um, well, I had seen all kinds of people, but maybe I had never thought about that. Perhaps mm-hmm. it did. 
Yes. And knowing that there are services available and you just have to know where. Maybe that did help. Yes. To go and find them. I agree with that. <clears throat> you, you spoke up on that, Cal. So from your perspective, talk about that for a second. From, from, let me, let me make a comment first of all. <clears throat> I have told you many times that you've been a role model for me in how to deal with tough situations in a family. After our son had the accident, had some head injuries, some brain damage, you became even more important to me from our conversations. Remember those over the mm-hmm. past seven years? How, how would you describe how things were in the Auburn household as you were dealing with this? It had to be stressful at times. Well, it's always stressful when you've got somebody who doesn't, who can't cooperate with the rest of the family some of the time, and it's not her fault. Our son, he made sometimes it more difficult because he always was active and could do everything, and she could not. But Cal and I have always been united. That's the good news, is that it never split us apart. And we worked hard at at keeping them, trying to, to keep them both happy and occupied. Well, what you do is you... I think even more formally, Lou and I, not once, but several times, many times, we would say, all right, are we together on this mm-hmm. before we would ever walk out of a room or out of our bedroom? <coughs> but we presented a united front for you to see, for the world mm-hmm. to see. And I think that's what got us through it. Great. Thanks for sharing that. <clears throat> now, when she finished Everhart, and Everhart's a very protected society. It's a special school, and they have special teachers. And you pretty much know your child's going to be safe when they're there, even though they ride the bus back and forth. These teachers are very careful. With All of a sudden, she was 22, or going to be 22, <laughs> and Everhart was going to go away. And I had no clue as to what to do. Absolutely no clue. Fortunately, I started thinking that I was dumber than I thought I was right before she got to be 22. So I started asking questions, and I thought, what can she possibly do? I can't have her come home. It's not that I don't want her at home, but she's going to be watching television. We can't have that. So I just started. I went to Goodwill to find out what they did, and I went to, I guess, the Agency for Persons with Disabilities and talked to them. Talk to everybody I can think of, is what do you do? And I talked to vocational rehab, and they said, well, we can find her a job. She's something she could do. So we decided on that route. We decided that she would be at home and that she would have a job. Summer started dragging through, and vocational rehab had not done anything. And I kept calling, and they kept giving me an excuse. And finally they said, well... You know, the truth is, our secretary's out. And that form about Ruth is still sitting on the desk back there. It just needs to be typed, and then we can move along. And I said, i tell you what, this is Tuesday. If you don't have it typed by Friday, I'll be there. I'm a very good typist. <laughs> and I'll get it typed for you. <clears throat> very this few, was a shock to me, too. <laughs> very few parents will do that, but All I right. could type. <laughs> and a piece of type paper wasn't going to stand between Ruth getting a job. So it worked. And they... Um, no, wait a minute. Did you go type it or did they do it? No, they got it. <laughs> they managed to get a job. <laughs> well, let's not leave people hanging on that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. 
vocational law fairness, they probably shouldn't have told me that, but they did make that mistake, and I did have a solution for that one. They found her a job at, uh, it was at, uh, at McDonald's, and they, it was, it was okay. It was a good starting job. McDonald's is kind of run by children, but um, it was, it was good. It was good for Ruth. She, I can't remember quite what she did. I think she made salads or cleaned the lobby and maybe both. And she had a job coach and one job coach that was such a new field of hiring the handicap that her first job coach drove from Valdosta over here just to be a job coach in wow. Tallahassee. I think we went through three or four job coaches. And she worked there six years. <clears throat> the only bad part was there was no transportation. So I took her to work and I picked her up four hours later. Every day that she went to work, which was five days a week for those six years. Hmm. Or Cal had to, <coughs> or somebody had to. So it, it was very restrictive. You couldn't do anything. Fortunately, I worked at home so I could, my job was an at-home job out of our house. And I could do that. So, but that also tired. I mean, even I was getting tired. She was, the pay was very low. Even though she was loyal, we weren't getting anywhere. She was obviously not going to be a management part of that. So we decided to change jobs. We left McDonald's and went to a restaurant here that agreed to hire her. Again, we're working with job coaches through vocational rehab. And... Within the first six months, she took a tumble mm -hmm. and had some, broke out her two front teeth, and they let her go. They said that uh, she was still in the transition period and that they didn't have to keep her. And so Vocational backed them up and said we couldn't do anything. So we scrambled and found another job again with the help of, I think, her brother by this time, who was working for... Uh, one of the Walmart stores in Jacksonville where he then lived. I think he was helpful in this, but we got her a job at the Walmart here, again with a job coach. And through a series of, of very good fortune, she was able to work there 24 years. It's a long time. It's a long, long time. time. Yeah. <clears throat> now, she didn't work full time, but she rode a bus. She rode the bus to there. She rode the bus home. We went through probably 15 managers. We had some good ones, we had some great ones, we had a couple of really bad managers, but she made it through all of them. Talk a little bit about the transition. As she's aging, I remember us talking about special needs trust, the legal issues. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about where this journey took you in learning about those type things, because it's not just about the care, it's about providing for her in the event that one of you or both of you should die. Uh, talk about some of the things that you started learning, because I just think it's fascinating, and other people would learn from this. Okay, well, when we first realized that you know we would need to be have some special money left for Ruth to take care of her for the rest of her life, I began to listen to people, talk to people, read about things, and realize there was something called a special needs trust set up under the. Uh, uh, federal tax code, I think. It's totally legal. It's administered by Social Security, and it may be under their laws, I believe. And you can save money for 
a person who qualifies, who is considered intellectually or, or physically disabled, if they become disabled before they're 26 years old, and you can save it in a special needs trust for anything but housing or food. It can be used for anything but housing or food. And the reason it can't be used for that is by this time, the person who's disabled is probably going to be getting SSI, which is Social Security or SSDI, disability, or SSI. There's two or three kinds of help that Social Security, depending on whether there are parents that work, and they can get it off the parents' work experience when they reach the age, I believe, of 22. So we didn't apply for it when she was 22. I think we waited several years, but then we did apply, and she began to get a small check every month that uh, she could use for whatever she needed to use it for. And then when she went to work on her own, Social Security actually called me one day out of the blue, and they said, we are working on Ruth being um, getting her own Social Security check based on our own work experience. So... I was amazed. I, that's part I didn't know about. But it turns out that because she had worked since she was 22 or 23, I believe, that she was eligible to draw a Social Security check as long as she her work money didn't exceed um, a certain amount. And she was not able. They realized she was disabled, but she was working. So she got what was called SSDI. And uh, it was around $800. So it that is what supposedly would pay for her rent and her food. And then special needs could pick up everything but rent and food. Right. So if you have the special needs trust, then the money that's inside the trust does not affect her her federal benefits. That then. is correct. correct. didn't affect okay. the SSDI. That's the way it was set up. And so that was helpful. At that point, something came along called the Med Waiver Program. Here we are again, right at the right time in the right place in Tallahassee or Florida decided to, institute, to, to use this program. Med Waiver stands for it. You are waiving their Medicaid benefits to let them live in the community because person who is very disabled under the late state laws of Florida, anyway, can be put in an institution, and the state of Florida will pay for that. And it's very expensive. It's back then it was probably ninety thousand dollars a year. Now it's probably two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to institutionalize somebody. But it's how the state handles the people who are disabled who can't take care of themselves. Then the government said, "No, there's probably a better way. What if we waive that right?" What if we have them waive that right and we give them money to live in the community? We help them live through a program called Medical Waiver, or Med Waiver for short. And we will pay for a supported living counselor, a supported living coach, maybe an employment counselor, and let them go live in the least restrictive environment they can find. And we will support them. That's how we keep them out of an institution, is by supporting them this way. Now, your SSDI will pay for your rent and your food, and then they're working, they can pay the rest of it. If they have a special needs trust, if their parents have been able to set that up, or 
Perhaps they have special needs trust because they've been in an accident and that's where they put the money. Mm -hmm. Then the, then you have money. You can have money from that to pay for your your cable and your um, maybe a television set or a nice little sofa or chair or something. I mean, or your bed, your furniture, whatever. That's what special needs trust can pay for. So that is what I began to, to work at learning. And Ruth was able to go under the bed waiver program so she got a roommate and an apartment, and it it, uh, it was good. She lived away from us, but with support, supports. Mm -hmm. So she had some more freedom and some independence. She had freedom and independence. <clears throat> she was working. She rode the bus, dollar ride back and forth to work. They picked her up at the door. They brought her home, and and she had a roommate, and she had a very nice apartment. And that lasted maybe 10 years, and the roommate's... Family was not terribly happy with the, not with Ruth, but I mean, not had anything to do with Ruth. They just moved, so they moved her too. And Ruth had decided at that time she didn't want a roommate. She wanted to live alone, which made it a little bit more difficult. But, but she had a job at Walmart so she could pay her rent and she could buy her food. And with her SSDI, she could pay the rest of it. So without her help at all, she was living on her own. That's great. Right. What advice would you offer people who find themselves in a situation similar? They have a young child and they know it's going to be tough going forward, but they're not sure what to do. Well, there are a lot of organizations that can help them. And depending on the child's disability, I would say you start with the um, Agency for Persons with Disabilities. They have a wealth of knowledge there. It's a state agency. You just have to make an appointment. And you have to make sure your child is tested and qualifies for their services. That can be done at the, as early as age three. Unfortunately, in Florida, the waiting list for services, full services through the agency, is now at 20,000 people. That's the waiting list? That's the waiting list. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> when Ruth got in, they were begging for people to get in. That was 30 years ago. So you can see what's happened. So many people have moved to Florida, and there are a lot of disabled people who yeah. qualify for this program. So we're very fortunate. Now, they have some partial um, partial ways to help, but not like Ruth. She has the full array of services, and that's very unusual. But during, in her age group, all of those in that age group, because they were right in on the ground floor of this med waiver program, did get the services they needed. In fact, I remember the first person saying, are you sure that's all the services you want? Well, today you wouldn't do that because you just there's so many people needing and so little money to go around. But last year, the last about four or five years, they've taken two or 3,000 people off the wait list each year. The problem with doing that, even it started during the Bush administration, is he dumped in a bunch of money. But then he, the next year when they said, and Governor, this, how much money for APD, Agency for Person with Disabilities, he said we gave them money last year. That doesn't work. It's Once you put them on the rolls, it's a reoccurring cost year right. after year right. after year. You have to factor that in. So when they take someone off the wait list, it's just not for a year. It's for their lifetime. Mm -hmm. <coughs> in Florida, 
does not have the tax base or the money to do that. But we're trying every year. We lobby to get some people off the wait list. Now, to tell you 20,000, that's 20,000 people who are between the ages of like three and however old they are. When they're in the public school system before they age out at 22, that's probably the bottom of the list. In other words, they know they're having some care in the, in the school system. So there's not, there's not the push to put them on the med waiver. It's when they reach age 22 and above that they really need to get on there. And some parents are having a really hard time. They're aging out and they're aging and they can no longer care for their children. And they are, they're one of the first groups. There's a priority list that the legislature has said, and I think it's those people who are institutionalized coming out of institutions like Chattahoochee, one of the, they will get priority. Or people who have absolutely no place to go. The parents have died, they have, they're homeless. Right. They're, those two categories get the top priority. And I think there's a third category, and I'm not sure what that is, but the fourth category is with parents over 70 years of age. Mm. So when they take them, they try to take them to that order. Which makes sense. It does make sense. <clears throat> because you got to take care of them. Um, That's the right thing to do is to yes. take care of them. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, um, we'll talk about the legal side, understanding what's available, understanding the rules and regulations. Let's talk about the financial planning slash retirement planning side. Because for some people, if they don't, most people have a hard enough time saving money when things are perfect, much less when they have a special needs situation like you're describing today. Talk about that. Along the way, how did you deal with that? How did you come up with a plan to do all the things that you have done, the two of you, to take care of her, but yet you still have your own security and freedom and uh, you're not hurting financially because of taking care of her. So walk us through that. Well, what should people because be she has been under the program, the med waiver, then she has pretty much paid her own way up till now. Our fear is that as she gets older, there'll be more required of her care. In other words, she may have to go into an assisted living or something, and med waiver does not cover that. So that would be a private pay type thing. Um, we're, I'm working on a statewide committee right now to see what options are available for the aging TD population. Right now, the options are to put them in what's called an ICF, which is money that comes out of the general revenue. An ICF is an intermediate care facility, and it's usually reserved for those people who are the most profoundly disabled. They're nonverbal, wheelchair tube-fed sometimes, um, really cannot care for themselves, can't do anything. And then the step down from that would be a group home, usually about six people in a little in a facility with round-the-clock care, but there's always an awake person. There's no one that sleeps in the house. There's three shifts a day of eight hours, or sometimes the shifts differ. But there's always an awake person in the house who takes care of six people. And then um, from there, it's the independent living like Ruth does in a, an apartment with um, a caregiver who comes in at night and is with her in case of an emergency. But during the day, she depends on me. 
and she can hopefully take care of herself most of the time. And so those are your options right now. But there are people looking everywhere to try to come up with more options. Mm -hmm. The project underway now <coughs> being, um, looked at and is well underway called Independence Landing, which is sort of an assisted living concept, I believe. Maybe more independent than assisted. Maybe it's an independent living um, type of facility where there will not be an assistant. And I don't know about the, the, the food, how the food's going to be done. But this is going to be built in Tallahassee. There's a, a woman, Allison Tant, who's, who's been instrumental in getting this done. And what we need are some options for the aging DD population. When they're younger, they're more independent. As they age, they become less independent. And this independent landing, is that just going to be for persons with disabilities? Right. Okay. It's my understanding. I yep. don't know a lot about it. Okay. That's going to be an actual facility built here in Tallahassee? I think so. Yes. Nice. I'll let you know more as I know more. <laughs> I, I know you will because I, I learn so much every time we're talking about this. And before we move on, you ask about financial. And, and what you have to do, John, is just make yourself, you buy a life insurance policy or you'll, you have to save a certain amount. And if you set up a special needs trust, then you just save to that trust for your child. Um, it, it's just a matter of saving. You have to be disciplined in order to save, just like you do for retirement. That's just a part of the retirement. About four or five years ago, the state legislature, well, fortunately, there was a woman who was a housewife in Washington who had two children. And she said to her friend one day at the kitchen table, I wonder why I can save for one of my children, who's totally normal, and the disabled one, I can't save for that one without ruining his benefits. And it just made her mad. So she went to the IRS and a little chat with him, and none of this was as simple as I'm making it. They changed the uh, the uh, IRS, the federal regulations, to say that you can save for a disabled child. If that child has become disabled before they're 26 and meets the criteria that APD, Agency for Persons with Disabilities, requires to be one of their clients. So the ABLE came along in Florida, was one of the second or third state to adopt this program. And the, the you can save up to... $100,000, it is tax-free, and it can be used for almost anything, including rent and food. Mm -hmm. The regulations now, because it is a trust fund, up until just a few weeks ago, it was invadable by Medicaid upon the person's death. That has changed. Medicaid can no longer invade this. It's always that person's, and it can be left in their will for a beneficiary. That's news that's to me. News. So that's, that's, that's just happened. I just heard that yesterday. Now, I have not verified and I haven't read the law, but this is a Florida law. I knew it was being worked on, but I didn't know that it had passed. They got a one-year reprieve, and then this year the law passed. Okay. Wow. <clears throat> a lot of stuff here. April, yes. any other questions pop up in your head as we're winding down here? No, I think that was good. I'm glad that we covered the... Accounts. Me too. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. You're very active in educating people that, about these topics. So talk a little bit about what's out there that if somebody who's listening wants to get involved, tell them how they can get involved. Okay. I chair the Family Care Council, 
which is the bridge between the Agency for Persons with Disabilities and those persons or their families that have the disabilities. And we are charged by the governor, and each of my council members are appointed by the governor, to be the educational tool that gives the people the education they need to know where to get these resources. We meet once a month. We, it's an open meeting. It's always published. That I mean, If you want to come, you just have to ask, and you certainly can come. Nothing closed about it. We run workshops. We've done workshops on special needs trust, on guardianship issues, on diet, and on the ABLE Trust. Um, if you need a workshop, we'll be happy to try to put one together for you. We always have the director of the regional uh, regional director for Area 2, which we are, of uh, the Agency for Persons with Disabilities at our meetings. She's there. She can answer questions. And and it's a good organization. Um, we're all trained to try to find your answers. We may not be able to answer them as you ask them, but we know where to get the answers for you. Yes, you do. How do they get more information about the Family Care Council? Is there a website? There is a website, okay. yes. Family Care Council, you go to the Agency for Persons with Disabilities, and it's on that website, or you can just put in Family Care Council. Perfect. Good. You know, uh, we had a small part to play in uh, doing a seminar here at our training center. We should do that again, because that is something we can get more information out there and help you with that. Great. Mm -hmm. We should do that should. again. I think that people will do what they need to do. Um if they know about it. Correct. They want to have, and people were afraid of ABLE at first because they said, and ABLE stands for Achieving a Better Lifestyle, I believe is what that stands for. Um, people are afraid. They don't want to put their money somewhere that the state could take it because they do it invade trust, and they can invade a special needs trust too if it's a certain kind of special needs trust, I think. But because of this law, you don't. I don't believe you have to be afraid of that anymore. I think that they could put. A woman yesterday at my meeting said, "I only put two thousand in my daughter's because I was afraid she would lose it. You know, we would lose it if something happened to her." And now she said she would want to put more. That's good. A hundred thousand dollars <throat> would go a long way if you have other sources of income toward mm -hmm. paying rent for someone. Yes. Do you think the day will come when that that'll be uh, increases the cap more than a hundred thousand? Surely it will with cost of living and expenses. Probably, you never know what they're going to do. You can do it now. It's just that every, every increase you have in that, you do lose some of your other benefits. Right. Right. Well, mm -hmm. I, I've been looking forward to this. I, I thank you for taking the time to to share with us and our listeners because there are people out there who will benefit tremendously knowing just just hearing your words of encouragement number one but also knowing where to go and uh what i've always been impressed with is you learn but then you go teach you don't just keep the information to yourself you help a lot of other people you've probably indirectly helped tens of thousands of people because of your your dedication to this well thank you that was very kind and that's kind of what people are here to help us <coughs> help other people. So I'm happy to do it. And thank you for talking to me today. You're very welcome. You just reminded me of something I'm reading in a book. It's called The Art of Aging. And in Chapter 3, the author talks about Dr. Michael DeBakey, who did the first heart transplant, successful one. 
And it came down at age 96, they were asking him questions. Okay, what what is it that's made you different in your career? And his wife stepped up and said, I can answer that. It's one word. It's love. He loves his patients and his patients love him. And I thought about that. And over my career, once I got to the point of where it wasn't just about work and making money, it was that, okay, you're like a shepherd protecting your flock and you can learn but you have an obligation that once you learn, go teach others, that I really understood that. And that book reminded me of that in the sense that you you love what you do. Uh, You've got a big heart, and you're out there helping a lot of people. Both of you are. Well, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, Any questions about special needs or anything, let us know, and we'll guide you as best we can to. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you would like to know more about John Curry Services, you can request a complimentary information package by visiting johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Again, that is johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Or you can call his office at 850-562-3000. Again, that is 850-562-3000. John H. Curry, Chartered Life Underwriter, Charter Financial Consultant, Accredited Estate Planner, Masters in Science and Financial Services, Certified in Long-Term Care, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Securities, products, and services and advisory services are offered through Park Avenue Securities, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial Corporation is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities. Park Avenue Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this material, we are not undertaking to provide investment advice for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact one of our financial professionals for guidance and information specific to your individual situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, or employees do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Please consult with your attorney, accountant, and or tax advisor for advice concerning your particular circumstances, not affiliated with the Florida Retirement System. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are registered service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Copyright 2005 through 2018. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities or Guardian and opinions stated are their own.